few days ago, the kids told us not to worry about dinner because they, quote, got it covered. It's a phrase that always makes me suspicious. And because I don't really trust them, I immediately walked into the kitchen to see what they were doing. And I've got to say, I was genuinely impressed. There was a place card on the table written in red crayon that said reserved. No, the S was backwards. There were also settings at the table and handwritten menus at every seat. I was expecting we might be getting a pile of gummy bears for dinner served on four plates, but instead, Ruby was barking orders and plating quesadillas and Henry stood over the range scrambling eggs. It's the sort of thing my sister and I used to do for our parents, and it's sweet to see them make signs for their kids' cafe and hear all about the daily specials. But what's also fun to see is how much they've picked up from us. Over the summer, we taught our kids to make some simple foods. But also, we plucked herbs from outside and made compound butters. We showed them how to throw a little mint into a sun tea. And how to flip peppers on the grill and tear up some basil and garlic and toss it in just for a little extra flavor. These days, Kids Cafe is probably the restaurant we frequent the most. And while it isn't exactly the farm-to-table places that we used to go to, with chefs coming around with celeriac and ramps and showing off all these fresh-from-the-garden veggies before they toss them in some mouth-watering dish, those memories have inspired us. And as a family, we've been trying to cook with fresher ingredients. This week, I found myself looking out at our little patch of garden, getting excited for the possibilities. And in some ways, it makes me feel like a kid again, because... I'm basically playing restaurant too, thinking of what I can grow to thrill my diners and elevate our meals, and of course, what I can muddle into our mocktails for my patrons of all ages. Hey there, I'm Mungish Hatikulur, co-host of Part-Time Genius, one of the founders of Mental Floss, and this is Humans Growing Stuff, a collaboration from iHeartRadio and your friends at Miracle Grow. Our goal is to make this the most human show about plants you'll ever listen to. Along the way, we'll share inspiring stories, tips and tricks to nurture your plant addiction, and just enough science to make you sound like an expert. In today's episode, we're learning from the growers and shakers in the food and drink industry about how to turn your home-cooked meals into a true garden-to-table dining experience. We'll hear from one of the top bartenders in Atlanta about why fresh ingredients from her community garden are an essential component to her handcrafted cocktails. And we'll also talk to an executive chef about how her farm-to-table restaurant gets super creative with the garden's seasonal offerings. So why don't we dive in? Chapter 10, Garden-to-Table and Cocktail Shaker. Hey, Molly, so I, I heard you have a game for me today. I do. <laughs> I am so excited to play this with you. It's called Botanicals Behind the Booze. Uh-huh. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an alcohol, a liquor of some kind. Uh-huh. I and like I the sound you- of that. <laughs> <laughs> and I want you to try to guess. And some of these I think are very common knowledge. Some will be easier than others. And I want you to tell me what plant that liquor is derived from. Are you ready? Okay. Yeah, I'll try. Okay. First one, very, very easy. Mezcal. I don't I don't think I know what mezcal comes from. Or are you say, or am I guessing the alcohol? Or no, mezcal is the alcohol. Mezcal is the alcohol. Oh, oh. <laughs> I can tell you're not a big drinker now. <laughs> uh yeah, I I'm I'm not sure. So mezcal, like tequila, derives from the agave plant. 
Agave. Yeah. Okay. I always think agave looks a little bit like aloe, like a cross between aloe and a cactus sort of. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And so um, it utilizes. So we also like I'm sure you've used like agave sweeteners and things. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is. It's basically they utilize the sugars for fermentation. And that's how they get both tequila and mezcal. Mm. It is a succulent. And it's commonly grown in the southwest region of the United States and northern Mexico. And that's where we see most mezcal come from. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not a big tequila drinker, but I, I wish I, I wish I'd gotten that right. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I feel a little guilty now that I said this one's easy. You'll get it. Don't worry. <laughs> the next one is gin. Gin. Uh is there juniper in gin? Yes. I don't actually know what gin is. What the main ingredient in gin is, though. So the thing about gin is it's comprised of almost a dozen different botanicals. But the main and most common one that we know is juniper berries. And what's really interesting is like juniper berries obviously come from juniper trees, which are drought tolerant and actually are really helpful with preventing soil erosion, which I did not know. They always serve gin and tonics in India because it was that malaria drink, right? Like the, the quinine was supposed to uh, keep mosquitoes away or, yeah. or, or help with malaria or something. I've read that, yeah, about like with the tonic water. Yeah, yeah, yeah It's yeah. A very interesting. There's a whole history of the gin and tonic that we could spend an entire episode going into, to be quite honest. <laughs> okay. Are you ready for the next one? Yeah, definitely. All right. Vermouth. Vermouth. Um... You're saying all these things that I know I have in my bar, but I have no <laughs> idea what's in them. Um, I'm going to say grapes. Yeah. So vermouth is a fortified wine. So it's basically white grape juice that's slightly fermented. And But the other thing is it often is flavored with botanicals like chamomile or coriander or juniper, a lot like gin. Um, there's even chamomile. sometimes you might find saffron or wormwood in it. Huh. You can utilize vermouth in things like, as we know, martinis very commonly, Manhattans, Negronis. But one of the things I will say, because I've learned this lesson firsthand, if you're looking to make a martini, there's a big difference between sweet vermouth and dry vermouth. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> I know there are probably people out there being like, of course there's a difference. I learned that lesson the hard way. (laughs) But what I also like to do is I like to use sweet vermouth in some of my cooking the same way that I would use like a kind of a cheap red wine or cheap port um, to kind of sweeten like sauces or to like saute like mushrooms in. It like lends a really nice sweetness to it. So sweet vermouth, great for cooking, not good for martinis, just so you know. (laughs) I actually just bought a blood orange vermouth. Which is really, really tasty. Yeah, it's it's very different, but I enjoy it. That sounds, I yeah, I'm going to have to uh, look into that because that sounds amazing. <laughs> All right, Mangesh, those are the botanicals behind the booze. How do you think you did? How do you feel? <laughs> well, I know I didn't do that well, but I feel like maybe it's time for a drink. <laughs> <laughs> it's five o'clock somewhere for sure. Let's do it. <laughs> Oh man, I've clearly got some brushing up to do. So as I mentioned last season, one of the highlights of our pandemic has been mocktail hour, which we celebrate at 5.30. And my kid Ruby really got into mixing mocktails. In fact, the drinks are getting more and more complex. Last week, we bashed up some basil simple syrup to use in a lemonade. And there was a sparkling lychee drink with orange and muddled ginger. But the funny thing is that As much as we pull herbs and fruits to use in our drinks, I've forgotten how the garden can also be used as almost this extension of the cocktail bar. 
I mean, what would a Pim's cup be without cucumber and strawberries? And what would a mojito taste like without that fresh mint? I mean, it really wouldn't be a mojito. But the best part about a bar garden is it doesn't actually have to be that big. Just some mint, lavender, peppers, maybe a few edible flowers, and you have what you need for a really impressive cocktail repertoire. To learn more about what a garden can do for our mixing and shaking, I called up Kiata Mincy Parker. She's been a bartender at hotels, restaurants, and, and has even worked as a cocktail programmer. Most recently, she was named a finalist in Bombay Sapphire Gin's Most Imaginative Bartender Competition. And what sets Kiata's work apart from others is how she infuses fresh ingredients from her sip of Paradise Garden. It's this community garden that she started. It's roughly a quarter of an acre in Atlanta, Georgia, and it's designed to bring together bartenders in a space where they can grow ingredients and ideas together. Hey, Kiata. Hi, how are you? Doing so well, and it's so nice to have you on the phone. You know, I, I'm so inspired by this uh, garden that you've started, and I've been watching the videos, which are so lovely. And <laughs> I, I think I saw the Eve's pot liquor, that recipe that you made, and how it oh, yeah. tells this story between your cultures. Would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so... I was a finalist for Bombay Sapphires. I entered the competition with this cocktail. And it is a collard green and green apple cocktail. That's the base of it, along with Bombay Sapphire Gin. But I wanted to tell the story of me and the relationship between my Southern mother and my African father. Uh So just a merge of them. And both of those things grow in both places, but they're just cooked differently or, or eaten or done differently. But I wanted to marriage the two into myself into a cocktail. I love that. And and so what does the collard green do for the cocktail? And how how do you prepare it for that for that drink? So I have been juicing them. So you can get that fresh juice and collards are a little bit bitter. So you have to be careful with that. Huh. And and so what's the, I, I'm so curious, the, the name is so great, the pot liquor, but where's <laughs> the name come from? And 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 then two, what is the overall like flavor of this drink? So the name comes from Eve's pot liquor. I was thinking Adam and Eve with the green apple and then how in the South, especially my granddad, the leftover juice that's in your pot from cooking collard greens is called pot liquor. And my granddad would dip his cornbread in it. I like that. It tastes like almost like a salad, like a boozy salad. Because, you you know, you have... You have an herbal liqueur in there. You have your Bombay Sapphire, some citrus, a little bit of sweet. And then you have the greens from the collards. You almost get an umami taste with it. Collards feel like such an unusual thing to put in a drink. Like what are some of the other unusual ingredients that you've used from gardens and and been inspired by? I remember once I did a red cabbage cocktail. Red cabbage has ingredient in it that is almost like butterfly pea flour. So it changes colors when you add acid to it. So I've kind of played around with that. Beets, of course, turmeric. Honestly, anything that you can add sugar to and kind of make it work, you can put into a cocktail. I think what I like about some of this too is it almost makes it feel like the drinking is virtuous, like like you're <laughs> you're drinking a salad so it feels healthier in some way. Oh, how we like to trick you. <laughs> no. And so when you're dreaming up these cocktails, some of your ideas or a lot of your ideas actually come from dreams, right? They do. They do. Actually, would you speak about that for a second? Yeah, you know, the first time I started realizing what was happening, I was freaked out. 
But then I was like, you know what, let me just keep a little notebook around and kind of jot down when I remember. And usually I'll see the glass and what color it is and then kind of build from there, just see what ingredients or what time of year it is and just kind of pull from there a lot of times. So tell me about this garden that you've started. I've seen you talk about Sip of Paradise Garden as mm-hmm. kind of as a safe space for bartenders. Can, can you yes. talk about that? And, and why, why do bartenders need a safe space? <sighs> we are the hub of everything. Sure. Well, things are a little different now because, you know, we're in a pandemic. Before you walk straight to the bar, you met your party at the bar, you met your friends at the bar, everybody gathers at the bar. Just the fact that people unload on us all the time and we're not really able to walk away. It's a stationary position. You know, we're taking on others' baggage. And it's Mm -hmm. something, although we choose to do, but it's still something that we need to start taking care of ourselves. You can go in there and just sit in that space if that's what you want to do. You can grow your own food. You can grow stuff to develop cocktails. You can put your phone down and you can be in your own place and do your own thing. And it's just for us. I love that. So how has Sip of Paradise evolved over the last year and and has it become what you want it to be? And has it evolved in other ways too? All of the above. We're a licensed business in the state of Georgia. We're also Uh a 501c3 So we are full nonprofit. And when people discovered that, they just started giving and donating and everybody had no problem buying a plot. That's really cool. And we're working with grant writers to get more funding so we can have a water irrigation system. I want to be able to pay my garden director and my communications director and myself. We're just doing this because we had time on our hands. You know, my producer Molly was saying how we think about like garden to table cooking, but we rarely mm-hmm. think about garden to table drinking. And we should. It doesn't have to be alcohol. Just know that you can still get nutrition from drinking something. Hmm. Even if it's a little alcohol and it is fine. It's okay. So- <laughs> <laughs> what What are some of the underused herbs and fruit in gardens that belong in cocktails that you Mm. think maybe we should be thinking about? I think people need to start working with dill. Hmm. Um, I also think they need to start working with pineapple sage more. Oh, and lemon lemon thyme. Lemon thyme is delicious. How how would you use some of those flavors in in drinks at home? See, dill is an interesting one. So you're actually going to have to put thought in using that. The easy way would be to put it in vodka. Vodka is a neutral spirit. So whatever you put into it is going to take it. And you said lemon thyme, is that right? Lemon thyme. Oh, it's yeah. delicious. I would definitely use that in some um, some gin or some rum. In mm-hmm. rum, really? A rum. Oh, yes. It's funny. I, I've used lemon thyme and chopped it up and with salt and butter and radishes, but, mm. but never in drinks. You know, I didn't think about that either until last year when uh-huh. one of the members planted in it and I discovered it. And she was like, yeah, I use this with my fish a lot when I cook fish. And I smelled it. I was like, this is beautiful. I should put <laughs> this in a drink. <laughs> You know, one of the things I saw that you were gardening or talking about was, I think it's shisha leaves. Is that the yes. way it is? Yeah. Yeah. We, somebody gifted us one little plant of that and it grew so huge. And I know I used it a lot with tequila. I um, kind of did like a garden zen margarita. Mm-hmm. So I used that. I used cement and I used green tea. It was really good. Yeah, that sounds great. So one of the things my kid and I do a lot is we, we do a mocktail hour. And so I was curious, 
if we were going to make a mocktail using some of the things in your garden, what would you recommend or what could you dream up for us? Oh, I would definitely do some chamomile iced tea because chamomile uh-huh. is a good one. Also, lavender iced tea. I think a really good base for um, mocktails is some kind of lemon and some kind of sparkling water. So if you infuse your sweet with your herb, I think you can get more flavors out of it. Huh. Don't be afraid to combine some herbs together. Huh. So so what sort of uh, herb combinations make sense for drinks? So I like dill, I like cilantro, and I like mint together. Really? That one, yes. Yes, yes, yes. The dill in and there is surprising. Like, that's the thing. It's like this burst of something that you're not sure what it is, but it's really good. And I, I saw your husband has the same thing my wife has where uh, he doesn't like cilantro. Is that right? Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> my husband is in the percentage that cilantro tastes like soap to him. <laughs> I know. And I love cilantro so much. Me too. But- <laughs> <laughs> so I, I saw in one of the videos you'd done that you were sort of very gently pruning the the basil or the, there was a very specific yeah. way to do it. So anything that grows, it's okay to, to prune it. It's growing mm. to be pruned and then more will grow from once you prune. With basils, once they start to get that bud and flower, you got to clip it quick or the entire plant will get bitter. It's a subtle bitterness. That's really interesting. But it also helps it grow more, right? Isn't there, is yes. there a time that, that you can try to prune it? Which I, I, I've killed so many basil plants, so, so I know nothing about this. I'll take any tips I can get. Do not feel bad. It is okay if something dies. It is not a reflection of you. I love that. Kiata, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. And I really want to come visit a sip of paradise garden when I can. I, I hope you'll uh, give me the grand tour and, and a drink to, to drink as well. <laughs> oh, first of all, we never need a reason to have a cocktail at a sip of paradise. So <laughs> definitely. And I love giving tours. I love it. Wonderful. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Humans Growing Stuff will be right back after a short break. So I'm not really a foodie, but for a very short time, I felt like all of my friends were. And suddenly we were racing across town to eat at a strip mall Chinese restaurant because some famous chef was supposedly working there in disguise. Or we'd linger a little too long at a club because a woman was about to come through with these amazing late-night empanadas. Or we'd walk up to the third floor of this place that seemed like a bank, but inside was actually a secret Korean fried chicken joint. The food was often cheap and mouth-watering and the type of experience you wanted to tell friends about. But I wasn't really thinking about ingredients. I was just there for the adventures. And then some friend made a reservation at this restaurant. Blue Hill at Stone Barns. Maybe you've heard of it. And they booked a seasonal tasting menu. And I kind of went reluctantly. It was on this beautiful estate, and the waiter brings you a menu of things grown on the farm and asks about any allergies you might have or any food aversions. And then for a few hours, the chefs just play. They make whatever delights them. And going in, I thought, how can we possibly spend this much on food? Like, my wife and I weren't making much, no one at the table was, and the meal basically cost as much as an airplane ticket. But course after course, it was the most incredible experience. Vegetables I'd never tried before, foods I had tried but had never liked, whips and froths and crispy airy bites that were utterly transportive. 
It's still one of the meals I think about the most. Then, if I could take all my friends there, I would. But when I left, the thing I realized wasn't that I wanted to go out for more fancy meals. It was that I wanted to cook with better ingredients. We started adjusting our weekend schedule to hit up the local farmer's market, and I realized what a luxury it is to have a garden you can raid for fresh foods. And also, just how simple some of those flavors can be. Like a little fresh basil with homegrown tomatoes makes for a much more joyous caprese salad. When your roasted carrots and fresh thyme are grown from your own two hands, it somehow feels more satisfying. Chef Katie Koss knows a lot about growing flavor combinations. Her menu at Husk in Nashville, Tennessee, does exactly that. Katie's the executive chef there and splits her time between the kitchen and the restaurant's garden. Husk operates under the philosophy of if it's not from the South, it's not going on the plate. And because of that, Katie and her team have paid close attention to what grows locally and have created a menu and practice for rediscovering, cultivating, and preserving the region's natural gifts. Hey, Katie, are you there? Yes, I'm here. <laughs> hey, it's so nice to be chatting with you. It's so nice to be chatting with you, too. <laughs> so I've been to Husk a few times, and I love it. And it's really thrilling to have you on the show. One of the things that keeps coming up whenever we research you or look up interviews with you or anything is that you seriously love Dolly Parton. Is that true? That's absolutely true. I have a giant picture of her in my kitchen. <laughs> Do you think she gardens? Uh, I don't think she has time. She's a very busy woman. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, um, back to the reason we're here. Your garden plays such an important role at Husk. And, you know, one of the things I love is that you can see it from all over the restaurant. But how do you get your diners to connect with what you grow? Um, we have a banister where you can look down at all the tables. And during service, I would send line cooks out to go pick garnishes and herbs, you know, so that they really understand that what we're putting on your plate, we are also harvesting from our garden. And I think it gives the line cooks more perspective, too, that, you know, this is a really important part of what we're coming up with. We are using the garden for the restaurant and it changes everyone's perspective. I love that that sort of transparency and visibility. But will you talk a little bit about how you've elevated the garden? It sounds like it's grown tremendously in your time there. Yeah. So what's great about our garden is we really make use of all of the space and we have a lot of perennials, which we are so thankful to have. So for instance, we always have ground thyme that comes back every year. We always have lemon balm. Um, we have strawberries. We have pear trees. And what's great is we also compost here. Oh, nice. Yeah. Whenever we don't have our seeds in the ground, we actually plant clover to turn back into the soil uh, whenever we get closer into our spring season. Right now, we aren't able to plant anything, but we have a massive amount of clover that we're going to turn right into the soil. Oh, that's incredible. So I, I've read that Huss philosophy on produce is sourcing from the South, and we know that much of the menu springs from taking advantage of the seasonal gems that are available. So, so I, I imagine that you come up with ideas all the time about new things to cook. What, what are some of those things that are harder to grow, but, but are kind of delightful? I would say, one, I'm very obsessed with spicy peppers and peppers mm -hmm. kind of in general. 
they take time and they take time if you want them to be at a certain heat level, if you want them to grow at a certain rate, it really takes time and patience. And you have to know that, you know, peppers are a lot like grapes where they really need to struggle in order for them to produce that heat level that you're looking for. So you're not watering them every day. And you're also making sure that there's, you know, enough sunlight. So we're watching where, you know, we took out one tree basically just to take care of the garden because it was shading over the some of our plant beds. That's really fascinating. I'd, I'd never heard or thought of the fact that peppers need to struggle to be cultivated correctly. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's fascinating. And and I saw it, there was an interview where you talked about this pepper I hadn't heard of, like the habanada, I think. Is, is oh yeah, it? the habanada. Oh my gosh. I You're, you're just talking about the one of the most, <laughs> the best parts of a pepper for me is that like tropical sensation. And in your head, you're so trained to think that it's going to be incredibly spicy that you actually start salivating. <laughs> and it's the craziest thing. It is just, uh, it is crazy. And then you eat and then nothing happens, but you get this amazing tropical, like habanero experience without any of the heat. That's really incredible. It's, it's funny because my, um, I grew up in a family where my dad, we used to joke that he'd burned off his taste buds because he loved like, peppers <laughs> so much. And anytime you heard about like a new pepper, like he would like go try to find it from the farmer's market. But my kids can't take spice. And so I was trying to figure out how to, I feel like this is the perfect pepper for them. Oh yeah, absolutely. Habanadas. It's great. And just the very first one, you just have to eat it raw and you just have to know in your head that you can't help it. You're going to salivate whether you like it or not. You're just trained to do it. And it's, it's incredible. That's really crazy. So when you approach the layout of the garden at Husk, are, are you imagining dishes that you'll be making in a few months? Oh, yeah. Um, I have my commercial canning license. And so anything that we grow that's really spectacular in our garden, I actually am kind of a, I hoard it back and I wait until we're in months like these where uh-huh. it's like, okay, everybody's got pumpkin and sweet potatoes and turnips. What do I have in my larder that I'm going to use? And I, and I pull out a jar of, you know, tomatoes that we had from our garden, peppers, a whole source of variety of different things. And I kind of save those for winter time when everything's really drab. I, I love that. And I, I think I'd read that you'd really taken over the canning and pickling at, at Husk and sort of grown that, uh, uh, right? Is, is, is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's one of my favorite things to do. That little ping that the can makes whenever the lid seals is like priceless <laughs> to me. <laughs> I'm so nervous about canning and pickling things. I mean, like I, pickling is, is less of an issue, but, but canning, I, I'm, I'm both afraid of it and totally intrigued. Oh, it's it's a lost art. Nobody at a small scale does it anymore. Hmm. You know, and I thought it was funny during the pandemic, everybody got into baking bread and I walked down the aisle and all the mason jars were there. Like all the candy. I was like, <laughs> you know what you should be doing? Like we went, we went into shutdown in March. I was on Etsy buying ramps and green garlic from like Wisconsin or something. Uh-huh. And I would go to the farmer's market every week. And that's all I did throughout the whole pandemic is I just canned all summer. You mentioned that Husk is composting and the garden is, you know, I, I assume actually helping the restaurant reduce its food waste and its footprint by composting food scraps. Can can you speak to why that's important to you as a chef? Absolutely. I mean, waste not, want not. Mm. <laughs> I really, anything that, anything that we have that we can go back into the earth, I mean, why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. Well, I do it at my home. Like, I, I don't understand why restaurants everywhere wouldn't do it as long as you know the proper technique and turning it and adding it to soil i mean it's it's a great benefit for us yeah it's amazing at the start of the the pandemic you know new york city stopped composting and it's crazy how much more trash you end up with 
when you're putting your food scraps in the trash rather than in a compost bin. Yeah, it's very sad. Katie, thank you so much for being here. It's just so fun to to be chatting with you and and to be inspired by all the things you're doing at your restaurant. So so thank you for coming on the program. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Hey, everyone. It's producer Molly again. And I wanted to take a moment to talk to you about a very important issue. It's the dangers of bland, unflavored, and unseasoned food. Every mealtime, someone becomes the victim of a meal without any spice or zest. That's right. And you likely even know someone whose taste buds have been deprived of flavor. Or maybe you're the one eating poached salmon with nothing to accompany it but steamed green beans. But all is not lost and help is out there and it's called hot sauce. And it's here to take your food and your mouth to new experiences as you feel the delicate heat of Flavortown. Adding just a little bit of hot sauce to a dish could be a major game changer. And with fresh peppers from your garden, you can make your very own hot sauce and then you can control the flavor and the heat. And listen, I hear you. You're not at the bottle of Tabasco sauce in the glove compartment level yet. But trust me that with a little help from the garden and the magic of fermentation, you can make the perfect hot sauce that will enliven any recipe and delight your palate. So here are a few simple steps to make your own hot sauce. Number one, pick the perfect pepper. There's an enormous variety of peppers and each one has a different level of heat. In fact, there's even a way to measure them. It's called the Scoville scale. The hotter the pepper, the more Scoville heat units it gives off. So a ghost pepper, which is really hot, may be around 1 million Scoville heat units, but jalapenos can be anywhere from 2,500 to 5,000. So find out what level of heat you're comfortable with and plant those peppers. Because if we've learned anything from this show, fresh from the garden always tastes better than the grocery store. Number two, get creative and think outside the pepper box. While the peppers are usually the essential part of any hot sauce recipe, there are many that also incorporate other fruits and vegetables like pineapple or kiwi, and even more commonly tomato. So think about what other flavors from your garden you wanna heighten in your hot sauce. And finally, number three, get familiar with fermentation. Fermentation is the main process of making hot sauce. So don't start your recipe at lunchtime and expect it to be ready by dinner. Most hot sauce recipes recommend that you let those little hotties sit in a brine for anywhere from one to two weeks, depending on the temperature at which they're stored. Once you've waited out the fermentation, drain the brine and blend your peppers in a food processor or blender with just a little bit of that remaining brine. And then you've got yourself some hot sauce and you and your food are forever saved from bland land. This week, I've been thinking a lot about the pride people get from the gardens. That joy of tending to the earth and watching things grow, and then actually doing something with it. Homemade jams and pickles, fresh cucumbers and mint you can toss into a gin tonic, or a salad if you're the healthy type. And in my head, I feel like I can be that type of person. I love the way Kiata gets inspired by the collard greens and dills she grows and then figures out how to make delicious drinks from it all. I love how Katie makes sure that her diners see the connection between the yard and the food on their plates, and that the staff takes so much joy in arguing over what to grow. 
and that they get so much delight from plating those little herbs. This year, I want to experience some of that because last year was a disaster. Our little attempt to grow some radish and lettuce in the fall was a total failure. We threw some seeds in the ground and watered them, but nothing sprouted up. So I've decided it's about resetting my expectations. This week, I was reading about a man named Andy George who was determined to make a chicken sandwich from scratch. Like, totally from scratch. And he went to this incredible length. He started a garden for lettuce and tomatoes and onion. He made pickles by combining the cucumbers from his yard with all the salt he'd harvested from ocean water. He made cheese starting by milking a cow at a nearby dairy. He separated the wheat for his bread and actually butchered and plucked a chicken himself at this local poultry farm. And after six long months of incredible work and spending $1,500 of his own money into his garden and growing all this food, he filmed himself taking a bite of this beautiful artisanal chicken sandwich that he'd been waiting for. And when he bit into it, he looked at the camera, kind of disgruntled, and said, not bad. I mean, six months of my life, and all I can say is, not bad. He did not look pleased, and he couldn't actually say anything positive about it. And my sense is, he should have spent a seventh month maybe making Molly's hot sauce to make that chicken sandwich taste better. But I was thinking about Andy as I contemplated my own garden and ambitions. And despite what he says... There really is something incredibly rewarding when you've cut out the grocery store and made your food by going straight to the source of it all. I think this year, if we end up with a handful of misshapen vegetables, cucumbers that look like elbows, and lettuce that only grows the size of golf balls, no matter how bad it is, I'll be thrilled. Because I grew something I could actually eat. And also, it's about getting creative with what you have. So I'll bring these garden misfits into my kitchen and with great enthusiasm say the same thing Andy George did. Six months of my life and all I can say is not bad. Except I'll use an exclamation point at the end of my sentence. That's it for today's episode. Don't forget, no matter what season it is or where you're at in your gardening journey, there are some incredible resources waiting for you on the Miracle Grow website. Next time on our show, we're going to talk to the men who love plants, plant dads, plant daddies, and Miracle Bros. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Also, we want to hear from you. What are your inspiring plant stories, relatable struggles, or growing questions? Tag us in your post or tweet using the hashtag humansgrowingstuff. And don't be surprised if you hear your story featured on an upcoming episode. Humans Growing Stuff is a collaboration from iHeartRadio and your friends at Miracle Grow. Our show is written and produced by Molly Sosha and me, Mangesha Tegler, in partnership with Ryan Ovedia, Daniel Ainsworth, Haley Erickson, and Garrett Shannon of Banter. Till next time, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>